Is that ours? There's a car going off outside. Go ahead and open that. You'll see the light. There should be flashing lights. Go to the window. Go to the window. Silver, no white? I, I don't know. So we have this evening uh, nothing special to announce, other than again, uh, the prayer for moisture, and God is answering our prayer. Uh, we need this water. Uh, out in the, people forget we're semi-arid, and we need to act that way, and our leadership needs to think that way. So, other than that, we have the call to worship. Praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of saints. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let's bow hearts and heads in preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 222, 222.
long for the return of Christ Jesus. We long for heaven, God. We pray that meanwhile we would persevere on earth, knowing the many blessings that we have and our callings, Lord, that are significant, and that you tell us these things are good. Help us, Lord, to persevere therein, to be encouraged, and to draw nigh unto you this evening, Lord, as you call us by your strength and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have hymn 532, 532.
Let us pray. We praise you and magnify your name, God Almighty, as we sung in this psalm, that you are a God of mercy upon us, and you judge every man according to his works, and our works are found in Christ Jesus. And thus, Lord, we are covered by the blood by faith alone in Christ alone. Help us, God, to rely and trust upon that, even as we are indeed called in our sanctification to a life of holiness, to a life of obedience. Although we know we will fall short, God, and yet you have received us through the blood of Christ Jesus and the promise of the covenant of grace. And we long for that day. We, our God, are, th- are thankful especially for answering our prayers again for rain and moisture. We thank you, Lord, for our work and our safe travels here, God. We pray for continued safe travels uh, throughout the week and our various sundry places that we find ourselves that we have to do this week. We pray for our health situation, God, for those who are struggling with their body. As we are reminded, God, now and then, and perhaps more than we are comfortable with, Lord, that our bodies are failing us. And that this world, Lord, is not long to be here. It, too, is fading away. So we ask, God, that they would persevere, uh, that they would get the help that they can get, Lord, that they need for their body, and that they would be healthy again, Lord. We ask for your mercies upon them, especially those with chronic ailments that have been upon them for a very long time, our God Almighty, and that can be very um, besetting and very depressing and very hard upon their body and their soul. So we lift them up that they would not be discouraged, Lord, that they would persevere. We pray for the rest of us to be thankful for the health that we have and to maintain the best that we can. We thank you, Lord, that some of us are able to change our diets a little more and we've had better numbers. We ask that we can do what we can, Lord, with our exercise and our diet to take care of our body. It can be very frustrating at times, Lord, and very inconsistent. But nevertheless, Lord, may we persevere. We ask God to have continued access to good doctors and good health and to good information. Lots of information is hidden uh, or even uh, twisted uh, beyond recognition at times, Lord. It can be very hard. We ask spirit of joy and truth to be with those who are mourning and who are downcast and who are struggling with various and sundry issues in their life, that you would help them and raise them up and that you would, Lord, draw them unto you and you would bring them encouragement that we would pray for them if we know who they are and that they would be encouraged to know that even if we don't know who they are, God, our hearts go out to them as brothers and sisters in the Lord and that uh, we would do what we can if we could help. So we pray for them, Lord, and pray for all of us, God, that we would persevere and not be dragged down by the cares of this world or by our own sins or whatever the case may be in difficult situations we find ourselves, not always our own fault, Lord, that can break uh, us down in the mouth and blue. And so, precious spirit of truth and comfort, we pray that indeed we would be comforted who need to be comforted. We would mourn with those who mourn, and we would rejoice with those who rejoice. We lift up our children before you, God, and the child-to-be, And, Lord, for the youth, that you would protect them and guide them in this dark and terrible age in many ways in which we live in. Even though we have much prosperity in many ways, God, there is much temptation, more temptation in some regards than in others, that you would be with them, that they would stand firm. And, our Lord, they would read your word, they would seek out godly um, counsel and godly friendship, Lord. It would certainly be hard especially if they're going to public schools or their homeschool, Lord, to find any friends at all. And thus, God, we pray that they would persevere and not grow better, uh, but they would indeed grow up and grow quickly, Lord, to know they can be friends with other people in the church, uh, with certainly their parents, God Almighty, and that you will always be with them no matter what happens. Help our, our youth, Lord, and our children to learn your ways, to learn your word, to learn your gospel, and to learn your law, and to learn to continue to grow in love for the saints, for the people of God, and for Jesus Christ above all. We ask and pray, Lord, to be with us this week, that we would take it one day at a time, that we would not be discouraged, that we would do our duties and jobs before you as unto the Lord, and do it well, God, as best we can, and that we would do it with a joyful spirit, we pray. In your name alone, amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. 
Museum of the Heavenly Host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We praise and magnify you, God Almighty, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with the things that you've given us in our possessions, that is, things that ultimately you own, Lord. And as stewards, we give these tithes and offerings for the work of the kingdom. Help us, we pray, to persevere therein, Lord, that is, to use what we have for your glory, and that these tithes and offerings would be blessed. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Psalm 36. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good, and he does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Let us pray. In these words, we ask a spirit of truth and comfort that we would acknowledge and go to you when we do have times of difficulties, when we have people who hate us, try to tear down the church of Jesus Christ, that the wicked, the unrepentant, will indeed fall before God's faithfulness, and that your faithfulness shall ever stand, and their wickedness shall always fail. In your name we pray. Amen. Righteousness versus wickedness is a common theme, obviously in the Bible and in the Psalms. It is a theme of the struggle between the two in particular. It is also the apparent success of the wicked who shake their fist at God is yet another variation of this theme. David writes about it often in the context of his own struggles, right? An actual physical combat with the Philistines and others who hated him and hated God and hated God's people. It's in his struggles against the ungodly men who seem to have the upper hand against him over and over again. This theme of the righteous versus the wicked and all the variants thereof climaxes in David's imprecatory psalms the prayers of vengeance and justice upon God's avowed enemies. However, the conflict between righteousness and wickedness is also expressed in a simple contrast. We know this contrast in Psalm 1, for example. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Here we have, although not like Psalm 1, a contrast in a different form, more subtle in its own way, but yet here, nevertheless, of the wicked on the one hand, but not the righteous, that is the saints or David and his followers on the other, but God Almighty in particular. In his loving kindness, his covenantal faithfulness, his mercy and his goodness upon his people. And then he ends the psalm, as we see, in going back to the prior point at the beginning, of the wicked, of the workers of iniquity and what happens to them. He did not lose sight of his opening thought. So let's examine the psalm to gain hope and confidence of the goodness of our God, to conquer and to win out as over and against the wicked, whose works shall fail and always falter. The first major point here, verses 1 through 4, the transgressions of the wicked. You'll recognize this text, I'm sure, for Paul quotes part of it in Romans 3. But first of all, he uses an interesting word here, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There's a slight variant in the translation on that, depending on who you have. 
translating it. But an oracle, that word is a technical word, a semi-technical word, perhaps typically of divine utterance in almost every case. It's what a prophet would do and say, an utterance of a prophet, an oracle of the Lord. Here, that would tell the reader, it seems to me, to pay attention to what David is writing here. He's using it, perhaps we can say in a loose fashion or maybe an ironic fashion, not unlike when Paul talks about the God of this age. There is no God of this age but the Lord Almighty, but he means the devil, doesn't he? He's using God, we would say, in an improper way. And in this way, he's using it improper to highlight something, I think, here, which is to pay attention to his description of the wicked. It's not just uh, Paul, uh, Paul, David's animosity against his enemies, but rather he is giving a, parad- a paradigm, right, a pattern of what wickedness is about. And that's why Paul picks it up and quotes part of it in Romans 3, describing. He says, yes, both the Jew and the Gentile alike are condemned under the law of God. And he proceeds to quote a combination of Psalm 14 and this Psalm, a little bit of others, to point out that no matter where you are in this world, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, this describes you. And so it's telling us, I think, to pay attention to what he has, specifically what David writes about the wicked, that it's not speculation. It's not particular sinners he's dealing with, but all sinners. The transgression of the wicked. The word transgression there is simply rebellion. The breaking of social or political relationships between parties, like a covenant. And so again, uh, perhaps in this context, as we mentioned in prior Psalms, he's referring to other Jews. <laughs> uh, often we forget uh, that the enemies of the Old Testament saints were other saints. And I use that, of course, in the sense of other members of the covenant of Israel. We saw that in Micah, where they exploited their own people. So that might be the case here, where he wants to highlight that fact. Certainly in the broader idea of this describing not just sinners in the covenant of the Old Testament, or even the church today, the covenant of the New Testament, the outward covenant, we would say, outward expression of the covenant, but those outside God's church, they have also broken a covenant, and that is the covenant of works. And thus they are in rebellion, and high rebellion, against the King of kings and Lord of lords. The word there, transgression, at least that's the translation I have there in the very first verse, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. This is their oracle. They are rebellious. They have broken the covenant. They are wicked. The transgression of the wicked. Uh, A word I think we need to make great again. Make wicked great again. That word in the sense of describing wretched sins around us. The worst kinds of sins. It reminds us, I think, at least the usage of the word when I use it, of the objective fact of evil in the world. And that those in rebellion against God are not ignorant or duped against their will. It's not like they're kicking and dragged into the kingdom of Satan. But they're willingly there, and they want to be there. And they rejoice and rather be there than be with God's people. They are wicked. The next few verses summarize the nature of such wicked people and the transgressions they enjoy and imbibe upon. We have a threefold description in these verses. I see a threefold description almost perfectly. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The idea of fear is fundamentally within the heart, isn't it? There's different ways to express fear outwardly in your actions and your words. When the Bible talks about fearing God, it means first and foremost in your heart. And so this would be the heart of man or the thoughts of man. And then he flatters himself with his own eyes and his iniquities he hates. And verse 3, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. And so he has thoughts of no fear before God, of flattering himself, and then his words are deceitful and wicked, and then in verse 4 he devises wickedness, and he sets about to do no good in his life. Thought, word, and deed. The wicked exercise sin and transgressions in thought, word, and in deed. And that which begins in the heart, if it's not checked and strangled in the cradle, 
of concupiscence, of original sin, of the remnants of the old man within us, it will break forth into words and into actions, into deeds. And that's exactly what you see here in this description of the wicked. So that's the first point before I get into no fear of God, which of course is a common descriptor of those who follow the Lord. That they fear God. And so on the flip side, everyone who doesn't follow Jehovah of the Bible, of his people, the covenant-keeping God, have no fear, by definition, no fear of God. No fear of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because they are rebels, and they have transgressed the covenants. They will not submit to the Lord of heaven and earth. They will have nothing of the kind. They do not fear him. In fact, they mock him, and they curse him, and they use his name in vain over and over again. And he gives evidence of this idea of there's no fear of God before his eyes. Two, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. That is, when he's discovered in his sin and when he's discovered in his hatred. A light shined upon him and instead he makes excuses or flatters himself. The four there is describing what this flattering is, what this, excuse me, lack of fear before God looks like. It looks like flattering. It looks like words of deceit. It looks like devising of wickedness in the bed and setting a path towards wickedness and evilness. He flatters himself instead of prostrating himself with repentance. He will justify his rebellion against God. Flattering himself would be in the sense of, well, my sin isn't that bad. I'm not as bad as that other sinner. Is that really sin? I don't know. This is the idea of flattering. Not like, oh, the way we kind of think of it today. It's a moral flattering of himself, of excusing himself when he finds out his iniquity. And when he hates, when these things are exposed in his own conscience, let alone uh, publicly, he will justify it. And I recently ran across a startling illustration of a sinner flattering himself in his sin, whose iniquities and hate were exposed. And he flattered himself with a false humility. There's all kinds of subtle ways in which the world justifies and try to rearrange things that looks like they're better than what they really are. Robert Jastrow, a big-name astrophysicist who wrote all kinds of stuff and helped promote uh, science and the like, a popular author, a founder of the NASA Goddard Space, Space Institute. That's not a little thing. He was interviewed in a recorded interview, a video interview, and he admitted that astronomy showed the universe had a beginning. That's when Hubble, that's what Hubble found out. He was a scientist and discovered, oh, the, the Big Bang, right, about the 1920s and 30s, which blew everyone's mind because that means there was a beginning. <laughs> if there's a beginning, how can stu- something come from nothing unless there's an outside force, i.e. God? So they really str- the scientists really struggled with this. He struggled with it. He admitted it. He said if there's a beginning, if the stars are, and the galaxies are, are exploding from, they're moving away from each other. That means they came from a, a certain direction and they're moving and expanding, the universe expanding. Therefore, there has to be a creator. Something had to begin things and get the ball rolling. And yet he insists that he cannot know if there's a God. He says, I'm an agnostic. I'm I'm stuck between two truths in his mind. That the evidence shows that there's a God, and yet I can't believe there's a God. He says, just as I can't believe there is a creator, I cannot believe that all had happened by chance. Which implies that there was a creator. If it can't happen by chance. Yet I see I am completely hopeless bind, and I stay there. Showed my family that. My daughter's like, that's a man flattering himself with false humility. Look, I'm in a helpless bind. Oh, what was me? What are you talking about, man? You got the answer. You don't want it. You got the answer, and you don't want it. He flatters himself as an agnostic, that is, without knowledge, not sure there is a God. And yet everyone knows there's a God, Romans 1.18. Don't let the agnostic fool you, because the agnostic is saying this, <clears throat> that God has not so revealed himself in the world, that God is fuzzy in his revelation, which is actually not just an agnostic position, it's a counterclaim. It's not a neutral claim, right? Because the claim in the Bible... And a natural revelation in their conscience is what? Romans 1.18. All men know there's a God. 
So he's making a counterclaim. There's no, oh, look at me. I really don't know. I'm, look how humble I am. Oh, no, he's very prideful. He's, I know God is not clear enough. And we're like, no, God is clear enough. You're making a, an opposite of my claim. There is no neutrality. <clears throat> and his, he flatters himself that way. And he further flatters his unbelief by describing it as a hopeless bind. I can't help myself. Oh, what was me? It's terrible. Guy died like in 2009 or something at age 82. I don't know. I pray he heard the gospel somewhere and converted before he died. When someone denies the obvious evidence in a serious matter, family members in the courts, we know something's up. Something's going on here. And that's the case with him and others. In this case, he and others are in rebellion to the facts that God created the universe. Instead of admitting it, and submitting to it. He admitted it. <laughs> he actually went further than many people do. He admitted these, this, this points to a creator. But I can't accept it. They flatter their unbelief. They dress it up to make it less looking like an open rebellion, which is exactly what it is. Wicked words. The words of the wicked, verse 3. Uh, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. Agnosticism is a form of deceit, like I pointed out, where they tell you and tell others, I really don't know about this God, and I don't want to make any claims about him. I don't want to be too dogmatic about it. See, the atheist is dogmatic, right? He's like, there is no God. The agnostic's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But he is making an atheistic claim in the sense of, it's dogmatic. He's saying, God is not so clear. His revelation is not that clear. I can't see him. That's a claim. That's a dogmatic claim. That is... A deceitful claim, because Revelation is that clear, is that illuminating. So the wicked words, obvious lies, even little lies, whatever the case may be, that are offensive before God Almighty. God defines sin, not us. And so when God describes what they do and say with their mouth, we ought to take it seriously. Deceitful words, like claiming, as I said, agnosticism or atheism, there is no God. Political lies, lies by false witness, whatever the case is, they, they want nothing to do with it. And he has ceased to be wise and to do good. Going down that path, rejecting Christ, rejecting his word, and they rather embrace lies and have ceased to be wise and to do good. Verse 4, wicked devisings. So not just their thoughts of their hearts, not just the words of their mouth, but their actions the devisings and the deeds they wish to do, evil deeds. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. You know, when you have an image of a bed and being on a bed, your image is usually what? Relaxing. Comfortable. comfortable. You're not making plans of taking over the world while laying in bed. You're thinking about relaxing and sleeping, perhaps. But the wicked are not like that. That's the picture here. We have this picture elsewhere. I think it was in Micah, where they can't rest. They're devising at night wickedness, wicked plots and schemes so they can make more money or oppress more people or lie more about this or whatever the case is. They cannot relax except they do evil. And they set themselves, that is, station themselves upon a path of wickedness and sin, and does not abhor evil. It's not enough to do good as an act and thought were to deed, but we must also do the opposite, which is to abhor evil. Not just, I've done good. Well, okay, that's great, but do you hate evil? And so it's interesting how he describes the flip side here. Not just that he's doing evil, he doesn't abhor evil. And if we're going to do good, we ought to also abhor evil as well. These verses, as I said, were quoted by Paul in Romans 3. Second point, loving kindness of God, verses 5 through 10. Loving kindness of God, verses 5 through 10. There's an applied contrast here, as I pointed out. He doesn't say it explicitly, just starts in verse 5. It talks about the mercy or loving kindness of the Lord. It's the same word uh, we have there mentioned in verses 5, 7, and 10. And I do not know why it is... Translated differently. Loving kindness is the traditional KJV translation of the Hebrew word, which means covenant faithfulness. 
It's a, it's a unique word in that way where it highlights God's relationship and his promise to us to redeem us and to be loving and kind towards us. The origins of mercy, verses, uh, f- verse 5, so he has these beautiful pictures of God's goodness, of your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Uh, perhaps a picture of <clears throat> the grace of God that is not of this earth, but above and heavenly. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds, the breadth and depth of how great God's faithfulness is. That is faithfulness to the covenant when he says, I will save you. I will save you. He will do it. It's not a lie. He is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness because of his covenantal promises. Verse 6, your righteousness is like the great mountains. It is glorious to see, he's describing it as. Your judgments are great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beasts. He uses the things of this creation and this world to give a picture of the wonders of God's goodness towards us that are a goodness that's greater than the majestic mountains we sing about. It is the goodness of God who forgives us of all transgressions. His judgments, I take judgments there, not judgments of punishment, but of righteousness and of mercy. That is, God is faithful in his judgment to judge us innocent in Christ. That's the idea there, because they're all parallel, right? Remember, this is Hebrew, Hebraic poetry, which is a parallel of ideas, parallel words, and so mercy and faithfulness are paralleled there in verse 5. Uh, again, if you have a good translate, a helpful translation, it will offset and put them, pair them together. Verse 6, your righteousness, your judgments, they're paired together. So, how precious, he says, or excuse me, he preserves us. He, the preservation of man, verse 6b, the latter part, verse 6c. Uh, oh Lord, there's covenant-keeping name of God, mentioned a second time now. You preserve man and beast. That is God's preservation of all things is evidence that he will preserve his own people. I know people use the word common grace, whatever you, you wish to use. It is certainly uh, God maintaining things and sustaining things in his providence. Uh, and that he's saying this is good evidence of your judgment, your faithfulness, your righteousness, and your mercy that is upon us, your people. It's precious, verses 7 through 9. How precious is your loving kindness. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, the greatness of its power in maintaining us. And God's covenant of faithfulness is so precious and valuable that men put their trust in it because of put their trust in God because of his covenantal faithfulness. How precious is your loving kindness or covenantal faithfulness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust in you because you are faithful, because your judgments are true, because you are merciful, carrying on the idea. And they are satisfied in following God because of it, the loving kindness. And it is the fountain of life, verse 9. It is the source of truth and enlightenment for us. And thus by the latter part of verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. And we get that life through his covenantal faithfulness, that he comes to us, as we saw this morning, and gives us the revelation, gives us the truth of the gospel. And in your light, we see light, which is the motto of Columbia University from 1755. In your light, we see light. That is our knowledge of the world comes through God. That's how God has designed it and how God sustains it. And thus he's lauding the Lord, magnifying his mercy in contrast to the wicked, and depending upon him and resting in him, and describing it in beautiful terms. Verse 10, the loving kindness of God again. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. He ends the section with the same theme of covenantal faithfulness, That God keeps his word. He prays for God to maintain his love towards his people. That to those who know you in your righteousness to the upright in heart. Not to the perfect, but for those who've been born again. Relative to the world, that's a perfection, it's a maturity to be sure. You are described, do not forget this, many times in the Bible, as saints and as upright in heart. Because if you trust in Jesus Christ, that's what you are by his strength and power, not by your own strength and power. That's not what he's talking about. And we ought to pray that he would continue his loving kindness to us, 
to people who follow him and submit to him. And he doesn't end here with this idea, but goes back again to what? He ends with the wicked, but the wicked and the ending of the wicked. The fall of the wicked, verses 11 through 12. The prayer of protection, I put verse 11 to 12, with 12, where he says, let not the foot of pride come against me. So now he's talking about the wicked again. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. I described them in the opening verses here, how wretched they are, how calculating they are. I mean, that's what we have here in verse 4. He devises wickedness. That's calculating, not accidental. And they're coming after me. The foot of pride, that is the activity of them running after me, is the pride of sin against me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away as they try to shove me uh, towards death or to to, uh, poverty, perhaps. We don't know specifically what it is. And that's, again, what makes the Psalms so beautiful. They can be applied to all our situations. And God, and excuse me, David prays to God Almighty in this poetic description to protect him, to preserve him from the devisings of the wicked against him and against his people, to be sure. And of course, he cries out for deliverance, knowing that God will answer his prayers because he just had confidence, explained that confidence that God is faithful and just. He is merciful, is long suffering, and he exercises those. He's abundant in that exercise in verse 8. Like a fountain, verse 9. So I can go to him in times of trouble. And I know, because of that truth, that the wicked will fall. Verse 12. Although the wicked think, speak, and act out the rebellion in their lives. And although it seems like they get their way and there is no judgment upon them. The workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. That's the conclusion. It's a terrible picture, the picture of depravity. It's a scary picture if we understand what's going on here because this depravity doesn't sit there and just churn within their hearts but comes out in their hands and their feet, the feet of pride, against other people, especially Christians, especially followers of the Lord. It doesn't stand still. It always wants to move forward and devour everything in its path. And so when... David describes it here. It's not just an intellectual abstraction. Oh, this is kind of interesting, verses 2 to to 5 or 2 to 4, the depravity of man. But he knows it comes after him, verse 11. It comes after us. They hate us. If they understood what we stood for. And if they do not repent, they do not flee to Jesus Christ, the workers of iniquity will fall, and they will be cast down, never to arise against God's people and against God in particular again. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen. The word there is there. It's interesting. And upon or against, I would argue, against God's loving kindness to his people involves on the flip side judgment against those outside the covenant. God is faithful and just not only to forgive all unrighteousness of those who repent and believe, as that text is talking about. But he is faithful and just to punish all unrighteousness of those who persist in the rebellion and love their sin and will not repent and submit to Jesus. Let us take comfort in God's covenant of grace, as David does here, even as we acknowledge the depravity of man as summarized in the opening verses. And while we walk this valley of tears surrounded by the rebellious wicked who wish to tear down the church and kingdom of God, we know that they will not stand, but God's mercy shall last forevermore. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for the song. We thank you for the truth therein and for the encouragement, God, that your mercy is in the heavens. That's its origins, not on earth that is unstable in many ways. And it's a faithfulness that reaches to the clouds and to the heavens, Lord. And it's greater than the mountains. It's greater than all that we have and everlasting. It's a fountain of life. Help us, Lord that we may be encouraged thereby and strengthened. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 36b. Let's uh, sing verses 5 through 10.
and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.